Now streaming exclusively on Disney+. When you wish upon a star. Disney's Pinocchio. Starlight, star bright. First star I see tonight. From the studio that brought you Beauty and the Beast. I wish I may. I wish I might. And starring Tom Hanks. Have the wish I wish tonight. Disney's Pinocchio. Only on Disney+. Plus. Now streaming. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Zing, your host once again for a brand new season of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a special bookshelfy episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. So we are still on lockdown and practicing safe social distancing due to coronavirus. So through the magic of technology, today we are connecting with our brilliant guest via a virtual studio connection. Joining us is the BBC journalist, presenter and podcaster, Fee Glover. She is a veteran host. She launched shows like My Perfect Country on the World Service, The Listening Project on Radio 4, and is also the co-host of the smash hit podcast series, Fortunately with Fee and Jane. She is also the author of the intriguingly named Travels With My Radio, I Am an Oil Tanker. Fee, welcome. Very nice to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm just about hanging in there. What about you? Well, I think about the same. I mean, I don't, we shouldn't, uh, you know, we, we don't have anything normal to judge this against. So let's just say we're here and we're grateful. <laughs> I think gratefulness is a, is a predominant emotion of the past few weeks, I think. Yeah. So, Fee, have you always been a big reader? Have you en- always enjoyed books? Oh, I think so, yes. And my mum was very old-fashioned and very technology averse when we were kids which is now a very long time ago and I suppose by technology averse I mean we didn't have a tv for a very long time so we read books 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 so I think once you get that kind of ingrained in you from an early age it's just a it's a vacuum and a void that uh, just needs filling so yep I would class myself as a reader Have you been a big reader during quarantine? Oh, now that's a good question because no, I mean, absolutely hands up, no. And I think the, you know, the problem for all of us is that our mind is just elsewhere. And I hugely admire people who can, you know, compartmentalise and just shut down all of the stuff going on outside and really lose themselves in a book. But I found it incredibly difficult. And all I can really read at the moment are kind of humorous you know, anecdote-based memoirs. I'm doing all of David Sedaris's books at the moment, but I can't get into anything kind of heftier because my mind just drops out after about five pages. I know. I've got a friend who's reading all of the Hilary Mantle in anticipation of finally getting to read the last book in the Wolf Hall trilogy, and I just, I'm amazed. I, yeah, like I wouldn't you, be able I'm to looking, do that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm looking like you reading lighthearted things. David Sedaris is amazing. Yep, he's perfect because you just, so I read him before I go to sleep at night and then there's just always a little chortle out loud. You know, his take on the world is really funny, but it's also just really kind. And I dread reading things at the moment 
that might take me to a dark place because I don't think I would really be able to handle it. And I mean, let's face it, most amazing fiction has to have darkness in it in order for it to be amazing. So I just have a fear <laughs> of really big books <laughs> at the moment, which is a shame because obviously, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of time that needs to be passed and it in other circumstances, you know, would be a, a great kind of place to be reading. But you've picked a lot of books on your list for bookshelfy, actually, that kind of fit the bill of both being dark and serious, but also quite lighthearted and humorous and exciting. I think The Collected Works of Colette was your first choice. Yeah. And Colette is an amazing writer. She manages both the light and the shade very, very well. So she's just a joy, isn't she? And actually, my mm -hmm. sister gave me her collected works when I was in my 20s. And I hadn't really uh, put two and two together. So I hadn't connected her as being the writer of Gigi, which I think is what most people, um, you know, would associate her with just, you know, because the movie was such a, a huge thing way, way, way further down the line. But she's just remarkable. And she's one of those incredible women who was so out of her time. I mean, she just did whatever she wanted to do, uh, usually guided by the heart. And uh, her love life was tangled, but I think she just went where she found pleasure. Uh, and I, as soon as I started reading her, um, uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I mean, I've read so much of her works, actually, not recently, but when I was a, a much younger woman. And she is terrific. And she is funny. She is really, she is really funny. Yeah. Was she kind of a role model for you in your younger days? Well, I don't think so. I haven't lived <laughs> quite such an exciting life. <laughs> but I think what she did, uh, because, I mean, for, for people who don't know her life story, and there's no real reason why you should, because actually I think she's a slightly kind of forgotten uh, woman in, in history, really. She uh, She's the author of all of the Claudine novels and of Gigi, and she was married, I think, two or three times, uh, she didn't really have an independent life of her own. Her first husband took all of her publishing profit uh, when she became successful and left her a bit destitute. She embarked on uh, some quite well-known lesbian affairs. She just lived out her life how she wanted to <laughs> live out her life. And she was quite kind of out of her time. You know, she was quite a sensation um, in the Paris of the 19th century. And I suppose, you know, she wasn't in, in any sense a role model. But, you know, sometimes when you're much younger, you read about these breakout women and uh, it takes you by surprise, I think, that people in previous generations have pushed the boundaries so much because there's something about being a 20-something where you think that you own it yourself. And, of course, you don't. You're just walking <laughs> You're walking in the very well-trodden tracks of women who've really done it before. But, no, my life hasn't been as exciting. <laughs> what, what were you like as a young woman in your 20s? Oh, I should think a pain in the arse would be the best way of putting it. Uh, I re Do you know what? I just worked, actually, in my 20s. So uh, I left university and I got a place on the BBC's trainee reporter scheme because it was the only thing that I ever wanted to do was, was work on the radio as a reporter. And I just... I was really lucky looking back on it. I just worked and worked and worked. I could not get enough uh, of working. And my 20s are just a, a blur of microphones and radio cars and the inside of radio stations and early morning shows and late night shows and overnight shifts and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't have any kind of, you know, I wasn't 
I wasn't leading the party life of London or anything like that at all. I was just working really hard. <laughs> but you did have quite an international upbringing, sort of, you know, the jet set lifestyle of Colette, but not, you know, not as, I guess, in Par Bohemian Paris, because you've moved around quite a fair bit, haven't you? Well, I love that you call it jet set. Um, so, well, I mean, my... to be on. <laughs> to be honest, at this point in time, anything outside of the front door of my house is considered yes, jet set. that's very true. That's very true. Our boundaries have changed, haven't they? Yeah, let's go with jet set. Uh, so I don't know whether it was very jet set. I mean, my dad uh, worked in Hong Kong when we were growing up. So we had, uh, you know, kind of a two home family. Um, and when I started work in London I mean I was based I've lived in London for about 33 years now I think uh, but I had a job on the travel show for a couple of years so maybe that's the jet set part of it uh, and that was a really really wonderful thing to do so I think that was kind of late 1990s I think we did 36 countries in three years just uh, bobbing wow. around making little reports so yes I guess that bit is jet set but otherwise it's pretty Dalston based and it has been for about <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> Did you have any country that particularly stood out for you while you were shooting that? Do you know what I didn't actually and sometimes I really think about affinity because it's really important isn't it and if you have it and find it and you know you're lucky enough to be able to stay in the place that you find it uh, you know I think it calms a, a kind of wandering spirit and ticks a lot of boxes in your life and I can genuinely say that there isn't any other part of the world that I would want to live in uh, apart from this little corner of East London and I had no connection to East London when I first moved here at all although really strangely and I'm hoping that this will make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up sing but <laughs> I moved to a tiny place in Dalston I think in 1998 and my grandmother was about 97 years old and she was in an old people's home in Oxford and I remember driving to see her you know to go and take her out for tea uh, one Sunday after I'd just moved in to this place and I took the particulars to show her just out of interest and uh, she, I showed them to her and she, her face went absolutely white and it turned out that she, her family, her parents had worked, they, they were in service, uh, her dad was a you know handyman and her mum was a maid and they'd worked in service in a house just around the corner, literally just around the corner, wow. a glorious you know big house in Dalston. Uh, years, I mean, you know, 80 years previously, uh, and literally I had moved into a tiny place, not a grand house, uh, about 100 yards away from where her parents had been. And I I think about that sometimes. I'm not a particularly kind of, you know, spiritual or spooky person, uh, but of all of the places in the whole of London to have then ended up in and had some weird sense of affinity with, it's quite bonkers that, isn't it? So I know, and, and Dalston as well. That was quite, a, you know, in the 90s. That was quite a while before it became the place to move. The place to move. It, yes, it really wasn't at the time the place to move to at all. But it's lovely. It's really, really lovely. And, uh, you know, it's where the, the I've had my kids and they're at school here and stuff. So it's been a very, yeah, it's been a very happy place to be. Well, your second book that you picked is After You'd Gone by Maggie O'Farrell, who is a Northern Irish writer. Yep. So I would read Maggie O'Farrell's shopping list if she would let me. I've loved all of her books 
and her latest book is uh, is up for the Women's Prize this year, isn't it, Hamnet, which I haven't read yet, and I'll have to wait until my brain gets back into gear in order to do that. But the one that I'd picked is After You'd Gone, which is just beautiful about grief and loss and young love and how you rebuild a life after losing someone when you're young. And I couldn't believe how good her writing was. You know, sometimes when you open a book and you do a couple of pages and you are just so grateful that you're in it because, you know, you've got the whole of the rest of the book (laughs) to just luxuriate in. And I think she's a brilliant writer, absolutely brilliant. And I'm really glad that she now gets the recognition that she uh, clearly deserves. I think she's one of our finest female writers of the modern day. So... uh, you know, I, I'm kind of, um, I'm gunning for her to win actually this year because I think she's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And After You're Gone is lovely as well because it's set in London. Uh, it's got a connection to Hong Kong. It's about sisters as well. So there was lots of kind of resonance in the book and her descriptions of London. And I guess she would have written After You're Gone in the maybe mid-90s, maybe a bit before that, Um uh, are just absolutely spot on. It's one of my absolutely one of my favourite books of all time. What do you remember about growing up in Hong Kong? It's funny because my mum also grew up in Hong Kong, so I'm really interested to hear what okay. you remember of it. <laughs> well, so we we went there in the 1970s. Uh, so my dad had lost his job in the recession in this country, and he was offered a job to go and work in Hong Kong. So he just grasped it with both hands. You know, it wasn't kind of you know, enormous family plan. It was quite a get out of jail card. Uh, So I went over there when I was five. And I mean, my memories are just really weird, Uh, just of the heat and the humidity. And, uh, you know, playing, we used to just play in the in the car park of our block of flats all the time. I remember breaking my dad's steering wheel on the car once. It was a, you know, it was just a I mean, everybody's childhood is normal, isn't it? That's, you know, that's what everybody always says. And, you know, it just it, it just felt like a normal childhood to us. And then we, when we came back to this country, I think it's when you set things against each other, isn't it, that you realise how different things are. And, you know, we, we went back to live actually in a very rural part of Hampshire, middle of blooming nowhere. And that's what made my kind of early childhood in Hong Kong seem so completely different but I haven't been back for years saying for years and I don't think I ever could my dad sadly died quite a long time ago now and I don't think I'd be able to cope with that kind of uh you know wash of of memories Mm. actually and I think it must be an incredibly different city I mean obviously it's an incredibly different city to how it was in the 1970s so I'm going to just leave it in my memory bank I think yeah, I think Hong Kong has changed a lot. Um, I remember going back for Christmas last year, actually. And even my memories of being in Hong Kong with my mother from when I was a child, it is just a completely different city now. Yeah, so I presume also just really kind of actually quite hard work. I mean, so populated, so mm. polluted, so busy. And it wasn't, you know, it was obviously a, a growing city when we were there, but I don't think I would really recognise very much of it anymore because so much of it's built out on the reclaimed land, isn't it? So mm. even the skyline would be very different. Have you travelled widely around Asia for work? No, not really. No, I haven't. And and when when we were living in Hong Kong, we didn't do lots of travelling. I mean, I think travel's just... Travel's about to change again, isn't it? Because of the mm. coronavirus. And 
you know, maybe we'll look back on the last kind of 30 years as being a form of insanity that people travelled so much. And, you know, I know that if you went to live in Hong Kong kind of 10 years ago, then you probably would travel all around Asia and see much more of, you know, China. But I, you know, we just, it just didn't even enter our heads that that was possible or realistic or a kind of doable thing. So no, I'm, I, you know, I have very little knowledge outside of, of just Hong Kong Island. I know it's funny, isn't it? When you think about what it's going to be like to look back on this period in the last 10, 20 years, it will seem like absolute madness that people used to just hop a, on a budget flight for three hours to spend a weekend in a completely different country. Yes, I think it will. I, th- I really think it will. And and I don't know what accompanies that, you know, whether it reduces human curiosity. I mean, obviously, it's much better for the planet. But, you know, that kind of if you if you were ever to assume that travel broadens the mind, I think you could see in our kind of geopolitical state that it clearly didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there are, you know, there are lots of things I think that will happen as a result of this that will be really fascinating to watch. And I'll tell you what, where we are in London, we've been under a flight path, you know, for a very long time here in East London. And of course, there have been no planes for the last month. And there is something really quite profound about taking planes out of the sky and my kids, who are uh, young teenagers, you know, they've never known anything different than a really, really noisy city. And we were sitting outside the other day, and I can't remember which one of them said, it's, you know, it's like the sky is completely new, because there's just nothing up there. And you forget how much actually a busy sky is part of a city life you know there's always noise and there's always a trail going across and uh, it's just one of those tiny things that I've noticed since the coronavirus hit and I don't not sure that I really want to go back I mean we will go back to some form of travel won't we but I think you're right just the you know let's hop on a plane and go and have lunch somewhere which I believe some of the Instagram generation have enjoyed doing (laughs) that is you know that is mad isn't it that is not for much longer This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Well, your third book that you picked is The Domestic Manners of the Americans by Fanny Trollope. Um, What is that one about? So Fanny Trollope is a really amazing woman. Um, so you will recognise the surname, uh, you know, because of the writing of her son, but actually she was a writer in her own right and she was absolutely bloody brilliant. And she uh, she wrote The Domestic Manners of the Americans in the 1830s when she took her and three of her children, I think she had five or six children, to go and live in America to try and make a family fortune to make up for her feckless husband uh, back in Britain who was basically drinking away the family money. And she's remarkable because if you think about what most other women were doing at the time, women of her kind of, uh, you know, middle, upper-class status, they were not travelling to America to try and, you know, make it on their own. She's a real proper, proper frontier woman. And the irony of the domestic manners of the Americans 
is that uh, she didn't really luck out when she went to New York. She found it very difficult to break into society there. She was not making the kind of fortune that she wanted to make. And eventually uh, she wrote this book, which is kind of taking the piss out of all of the very mannered American elite and all of their pomposity and uh, their kind of exclusivity. And and the book became a massive hit. But of course, it meant that the doors of society really properly closed on her. <laughs> and so uh, she kind of, she slightly stabbed herself in the foot. But she also went off to Cincinnati to start a trade fair in another attempt to make some money for herself and her family. And again, I mean, imagine that uh, you are you've got three kids in tow you're a woman you're not even from America and you decide that you're going to go to a city that you don't know and try and do business with people who don't want to know you I mean she was she just had balls absolute balls and it's a very funny book she does not spare the horses in her in a very very witty pithy takedown of American society. So I couldn't recommend it enough. I mean, no, nobody's really read it. Nobody's really heard of Fanny. Uh, and uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. I think she deserves a much, much bigger place in the canon of female literature. It's well worth a read. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but did she actually end up making it in America? No, I, don't, I, think, <laughs> oh. I think we can safely say that because nobody's really you know, taking that much notice of her. No, she didn't. And and she, she ended up coming back, um, uh, you know, without having made the huge family fortune at all. But she, do you know what, the way she writes as well is really uh, self-deprecating. You know, she's very aware of her own shortcomings to, you know, she's a very, very brilliant woman. Uh, and I suppose, I mean, it's no great comfort to her that she didn't make it but it slightly would have ruined her if she had because her writing is brilliant because she does find everything you know a bit of a struggle and it doesn't really work out and there aren't you know rainbows and unicorns at the end of the story you know that's what makes it such an amazing read but I I really would recommend it I really would recommend it it's and, and and also it just it's just funny and not a lot has changed you know that level of society uh, I think, especially on the East Coast, I think it's, you know, it's still elitist, it's still snobby, it's still difficult to break into, you know, should you want to try and do that. Uh, I think she's tapped into something of the American spirit that we don't always uh, read that much about. Did you ever encounter that in your experiences or travels in America? Does that spirit well, I, still yeah, very so, much live on? Yeah, I did. Uh, I went to, to try and live in Manhattan, actually, in my early 30s, uh, expecting to really love it and maybe never come home. And I came home and I didn't really like it because, God, I don't know why, actually. I, I found, I mean, I get that New York's really exciting and vibrant and, you know, you're, you're never bored and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't know. There was something about it that I that just didn't really chime with me. And, you know, maybe there's something of the same thing. I mean, I wasn't trying to kind of break into a, a, a Manhattan elite, but I, I found it. I found that I felt very much on the outside looking in. Uh, in a way that I didn't really expect because it's that thing isn't it of speaking the same language as Americans but actually we are completely completely different uh, in terms of our 
are kind of national characteristics and and it is a foreign country so I didn't yeah I didn't like it as much as I hoped that I would do and I came back after a couple of months did you move over there for a job or just to kind well, of test yeah, the water? I was, yeah, I was going to write a book. Um, I was going to write a book and I did start writing a book about the, a left-wing American talk radio station that had been set up to try and rival the unbelievable power and really forceful emerging power of the right-wing radio stations, you know, that was swinging elections. So this was in the time of, of, um, of George W. Bush. And the right wing kind of tone of voice was becoming very harsh and very didactic and really kind of quite insightful to all kinds of hatred. But it was absolutely zinging it. And uh, a group of Democrats tried to set up a left wing liberal radio station to try and rival that sound. So I went over to America to try and write a book about that. But uh, the radio station folded. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, within a couple of months because actually left-wing liberal talk radio is uh it's dull. I mean, you know, it's, it, that's not to say that it's not carrying, you know, important messages and talking about important things, but actually it's hard to have a really uh kind of high-volume punchy debate when what you're trying to say is, you know, let's all be kind of nicer and kinder to each other. And that's what they found. And, you know, the the kind of the, the right wing in America, as we all know, is uh, incredibly powerful now. And the seeds that were being sown, so this would have been 15 years ago, uh, were, you know, were quite, it was quite ear-catching stuff. We've got used to it now, but it was ear-catching stuff at the time. And I admire hugely the, you know, the group of people who were trying to, you know, provide some kind of an alternative to it, but it just didn't work. It just wasn't ear-catching and nobody was listening and the advertisers weren't buying. Um, and their big name signing was Al Franken, uh, you know, who then, uh, uh, his demise has been well-charted, uh, but at the time, he was just a comedian. He, he hadn't uh, stood for political office. And he was good and he was funny, but he he wasn't ever going to kind of take on the Rush Limbaugh's who were really doing the business. So, yeah, mm. it wouldn't have been a great book. I started to write it thing and I was slightly bored of, of you know, what I was writing. So that's never going to be a good sign for your readers. So the whole Jing Bang sheet just folded and I came home. But this was before you wrote your actual book, uh that did get published, that you did finish. Oh, so no, that was, was it, afterwards. Or did it predate so it? That I was, was after yeah, it. that was afterwards. So I wrote Travels with my radio, I think probably 1999 to 2000. Yep. And uh, yes, that was in, that was enormously, enormously good fun. Yep. Which is just a very simple book about really slightly bonkers local radio stations around the world that are always stuffed full of people with, enormously warm hearts and enormous kind of local characters and you don't get as many local radio stations like that anymore because there's just been such a change in the whole industry but back then you could pretty much guarantee that any town you turned up in you know anywhere in the world uh, would have some kind of a tiny broadcasting facility stuffed full of people you know with enormous local voices so it was just a book that kind of celebrated all of that is there a specific character that still stands out after all these years do you know what there are quite a few actually there was a really lovely guy called dj fitz i don't i don't think i ever even knew his first name uh who broadcast 
uh, a really brilliant music show in Palm Springs. And he was just one of those people who was so dedicated to the art of talking up to the lyrics, making an amazing kind of playlist way before we even all used the term playlist. And he did it every night from this kind of bunker in a semi-industrial park outside of Palm Springs. So there was no glamour to the reality of the radio station. But if you listened to it, it sounded like the most glamorous thing. It sounded like the closest thing that you would ever get in a modern America that was redolent of, you know, Sinatra and all of that kind of Rat Pack era. It was just the most brilliant radio show. And then you peeled, you know, the, the exterior away. The and Palm Springs branding. Yep, just sitting in a car park, <laughs> uh, putting all of these tunes together. But he was just a lovely guy and he was just really, really passionate about what he did. And he just, you know, he loved his job. He loved the, the whole kind of medium of radio. He loved all of his audience. You know, he was just cracking, actually. He was an absolute cracking bloke. I'm going to assume he is not the source of the I am an oil tanker. No, so the I'm an oil tanker is just a, 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 a quite a well-known within the radio industry uh, cock-up that was made by a very nice guy who was reading the IRN news and he got a little bit confused, walked into the studio, sat down with his papers, I think he was probably in a bit of a hurry, and announced to the nation, um, I'm an oil tanker, Dickie Arbiter's ablaze in the Gulf. So it's just one of those things where he got his name wrong and the sentence wrong and it's just a tiny little kind of radio legend thing. But actually there were two, uh, you know, there were two prints of the book and the first is called I'm an Oil Tanker and the second one's just called Travels with My Radio because the publishers thought it was just too confusing a title and, you know, it had been placed in shipping um, in some bookshops. So (laughs) So it's got two titles, one book, two titles. I could see how it could be placed in shipping, but I love I am an oil tanker. <laughs> so irreverent and fun. But also, I mean, I don't know how big the shipping section is in your average Waterstones, but also it just doesn't look like a book that's going to be about freight. But uh... <laughs> you never know. Maybe the community of freight readers is much bigger than we think. It might be. It might be. So let's not do them a disservice. Yeah. And the fourth book you've picked is What I Loved by Siri Hustvedt. So uh, so it's the most beautiful novel about uh, a group. Uh, in fact, it's set in New York, about a, a group of artists and their lives, their intertwined lives with each other. And, you know, sometimes when you read a book and you want the whole world to slow down, you know, so you can just really really enjoy the moment and I felt like that every single page of the book so she just writes so amazingly about the love that you feel for your children about the different love that you feel uh, for men and women and it's a really tragic book uh, and I won't there's a death in it but I won't say anything more than that uh uh, it has stayed with me. It's a book that's really, really stayed with me. And her prose is incredible and her descriptions are incredible. But there's just something about the way that she writes about the depth of love that I haven't really found um, in another book. And she's just terrific. She's absolutely terrific. And I came to it quite late, actually. I think I read it probably a good 10 years after she'd um, 
Richard written it and I and I did read it after I'd had my children and and again I don't want to uh, give too much of the book away but it's an important book to read I think as a um as a parent I'm not sure I'm not sure that it would have had quite as much resonance if I'd read it before having kids so I think we have to leave it at that otherwise I'm going right. to give away what happens in it <laughs> is it yeah. a book that makes you feel good about being a mother or terrible Oh, I think it's just about the whole fragile business Mm -hmm. of it. That's what it is. Uh, And it's about the reality. And most of all, it's a book about, uh, it's a book about what you, about that difference between what you need from love and what you want from love, which, you know, those are two quite distinct things. And, uh, you know, she writes about it in such an eloquent way I'm not going to be able to explain it any better than that. How did you encounter the book? Oh, so a friend of mine recommended it. Uh, A really fantastic friend, Vic, who is an avid, avid reader. So she'll race through. She's always read everything. She's just fantastic. And I think she said it was one of the most powerful books she'd ever read. So I just picked it up from that. I'm not terribly good, actually, at uh, reading books you know, when everybody else is reading them. And I don't know whether that's like almost a syndrome, you know, where you don't you don't want to be part of the kind of I'm reading this at the moment thing. I quite like to wait and read books in my own time. I don't know whether anybody else does that. I mean, it does mean that you can't talk about lots of books if people are talking about lots of books because you haven't read them yet. But I always seem to be really late to the game on things. I actually think that's almost better because you don't want other people's opinions of a book to colour your experience of reading it. And I think if there's a hot book that everyone's reading at the minute, it almost kind of influences the way you read it. Yes, I would agree. And uh, I'm in a book club and the ladies in the book club are, are really fantastic and I value everything they say, but sometimes I almost don't want to share what I think about books or hear what they think about books. I mean, that sounds terribly mean and, and you're really entitled to just say, well, why don't you just get out of book club then, Fee? But it's I find, sometimes find it quite hard. I suppose, you know, reading for me is just a very... It is just a really personal experience and I don't always, I think especially with fiction, I don't always want to tell people what I've thought about how a book has made me feel, which is unhelpful to the publishing industry, I know. <laughs> but, but I'm just being honest. <laughs> it probably gets on the nerves of your book club members. I think of, if any of them listen to this, I am out of book club. I'm unwelcome, unwelcome. No, we need we need book club in these times. Yeah, and uh, you know the proliferation of book clubs is a is a really fantastic thing. But and I'm sure I'm not the only one doing that. You know, just kind of thinking, well, you know, of course I want to go along, and of course I want to be part of this. You know, but maybe I won't I won't tell everything about how I feel about mm. what I've read. So. The fifth and final book you've chosen is I Feel Bad About My Neck by Nora Ephron, which I love. Oh, <laughs> she is fantastic. The best, the best. So I think it's a collection of uh, just some of her essays and largely her essays about being a woman and about aging as a woman. And she's an extraordinary writer. So lots of people might know her because of her films, but she was also a really fantastic uh, political essayist too. I sometimes think she got 
slightly kind of shoved into that lane that that female writers can get shoved into, which is to write about love and relationships. But she's got such a depth to her writing. And the title of the essay collection, I Feel Bad About My Neck, uh, just refers to her meeting up with her group of girlfriends. I suppose they would be in their late 50s, early 60s. And there was one day when they all turned up at a restaurant, they were all wearing turtlenecks or polo necks because that kind of sagging of the neck had just started to happen to them. And she just writes these blisteringly honest, funny, wonderful, warm-hearted, wise essays about what it's like to be a woman uh, but also, you know, to be a clever woman and to really watch everything that's happening around you. And I just love her to bits. So I think I've given a copy of I Feel Bad About My Neck to probably about 20, 25 friends uh, across the last five or six years and I've started to give it to men I've forced it on my brother-in-law and he really enjoyed it and it's a funny thing isn't it because actually we you know we need to read more experiences across the the genders about how we feel about aging and how you know we feel about our bodies and our minds and uh, I would like to think that you know men would be as amused by Nora's writing as women are and I don't know a single woman to whom I've given her book who hasn't then written back or phoned up and said absolutely brilliant you know I can't believe that I haven't come across these before because she's enormous she's an enormous figure in America uh, but I think she's you know she's I don't know is she is she still would she trip off the tongue of everybody here I don't know I honestly Probably. don't know Probably not. I feel like here she's probably most known for, you know, you've got mail sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, um, I think. Uh, and of course, you're you know, the her films will uh, kind of eclipse her writing just in terms of, of fame. Um, but she's just wonderful, really, really wonderful. And this probably says something about my aging brain, but I can go back and read her essays as if I've uh you know, never read them before, probably every two or three years. And it'll, you know, they'll still make me laugh out loud. She's just bloody brilliant. Really, really brilliant. It's interesting because um, I was really delighted you put this on your list, because in some ways, I think that your podcast of Jane Garvey, fortunately, reminds me in tone and spirit, a lot of Nora Ephron. Oh, my God. <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't pick up the crumbs from her table. <laughs> so, well, that's a very nice thing to say, but we're nowhere close. But um, I mean, our, yeah, I mean, our podcast is about two fifty-something women shooting the breeze about life, and I hope that we're quite honest about it. Uh, I mean, I, you know, Jane would say exactly the same thing. I think we're two classic examples of women who've really tried very hard, but it's not always worked out. <laughs> So, you know, our, Has our it not? <laughs> no, not really. No. So our observations on life are from that kind of, oh, OK, well, yep, that's happened now. Um, and we enjoy doing it enormously. But we're not. Uh, well, uh, Jane is incredibly funny and wise and clever, but I would never presume to put myself in the same same category as Nora Ephron at all. How did Fortunately come about? Oh, gosh. Well, Jane and I did a... So we'd worked to, together just as colleagues on the same radio station for years, but we didn't really know each other very well. And we hosted a Radio Academy Festival, which is, you know, the kind of industry shindig for everybody in audio, way back in 20. 
13, I think. And they'd never had two women host the festival before and the expectations were alarmingly low and we just about managed to scrape above them. So somebody, I think, in the audience thought, well, they're quite funny together. You know, why don't we see if we can do something else? But it did take about, God, it took about four years until we eventually got commissioned to do the podcast. And originally we were meant to do a podcast that was kind of recommending other bits of audio that we'd heard um, and then it just turned into Jane and I kind of shooting the breeze and that's what it's stayed being ever since with an occasional uh, guest who pops up to and stirs it around a bit. And it's massive. It's one of the BBC's biggest podcasts. I know and they didn't expect that. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes it even better. We're quite pleased. But you know what there's a serious thing to say about that um, which is uh People have been surprised that it's been successful. And I think it is the BBC's third or fourth biggest podcast. And and people have been surprised because I think they didn't imagine that two women shooting the breeze together would have any kind of huge currency or huge validity. And of course it does, because when women get together and talk, you know, often it goes from profound to idiotic within seconds And, you know, the way that women talk is really not on the radio. It's not being displayed, uh, you know, in lots of other places. And just that kind of pattern of speech, apart from the content, is not really on display. So I think it's just fantastic that lots of people do like it. And I think they like it because they just hear, you know, something of how they speak in it too. And actually we do have lots of male listeners. It's not it's not just women. And they all say the same thing, that it's just really nice to kind of eavesdrop on, you know, more normal type of conversation. So we're thrilled that it's been a success actually, really thrilled. Because I'm assuming radio, as in BBC radio and being on the air and being broadcasting is very different from podcasting. Yes, and I think actually a lot of women, and I'd count myself in this too and so I am 51 so I've been doing it a very long time so I think a lot of women have always felt that they needed to be something slightly different to their normal lives in order to be on air and that's not a a totally kind of pejorative thing to say it's just about you know the kind of formality of radio when it started you know the need to be taken seriously uh, which you know definitely is more of a thing for women than it is for men. And so I think, you know, the way that we've always talked on radio hasn't been as natural as we would like it to be. And then along comes podcasting, you know, which is just so deliciously loose and different and is propelled by subscription. So, you know, you can just be, you know that your audience is liking what you're doing. And and actually that really, you know, that does power you to take a a different direction and I think podcasting has allowed so many different forms of conversation and not just you know the way that women talk I think there are lots of you know really amazing podcasts by men and all manner of different communities just talking how they talk you know that's and that's the joy of it it loses this kind of slightly it's not a pompous thing you know, when you're on the radio, but it's definitely a kind of more official type of conversation 
So the looseness of podcasting, I think, has been wonderful, really, really wonderful. And also, who knew? You know, who thought Tiny Little Radio, which was always television's kind of poor cousin, uh, would actually be the medium that really, really thrives and succeeds? So all hail to it. I know. Well, nowadays, like I only really one. watch. Look. I know, exactly. Well, <laughs> nowadays, I only put on the TV if I want to listen to incredibly depressing government briefings about coronavirus. Oh. Oh. Or watch Netflix. <laughs> well, okay. Can I just recommend some things on the BBC that you might like? No, I can't be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But but it's wonderful, isn't it? And also because radio's just always managed to do that thing where it's a you know it's a buy one get one free service. You can be doing something else with your time, and you're listening to this amazing thing. Uh, so it doesn't ask huge amounts of you, and I think that's just come into its own now, hasn't it? In uh, you know in and also because of the, the technology available, you know, the smartphone just revolutionised uh, the life of audio. So I can't see it ever diminishing, actually. I hope it never does. Long live radio and audio. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Final question. If you had yeah. to choose one book from the list you've just shared as your favourite, which one would it be? Oh, so it would be Nora. Just for that, yeah. Just it just would be, just because it's got everything and uh, the th I suppose the thing that I really love about her more than anything else is she makes really complicated and difficult and sometimes sad things uh, seem so light and easy to understand. And that's such a talent. That is such a talent. You know, to keep you entertained when you're talking about death or divorce or loss or grief or ageing or, you know the shit of life she can still make it funny and you've learnt something by the end of it and I just love her for that I absolutely love her for that she is a classic I hope she yep, stays she read is. well into the next century well I think she will because uh, the the younger generation I think you're probably one of them the younger <laughs> generation has really embraced her because uh, Dolly Alderton has, has written the foreword to a new uh, publication of I Feel Bad About My Neck hasn't she yeah she so has. I don't think that there will ever be a time when we don't need Nora because what she does so well is she does make us feel good about feeling shit and uh, you know, it's the sign of a great writer to be able to do that. And everybody needs that. So uh, she's a, hopefully an immutable force for a very long time. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Bookshelf, Fifi. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you for letting me share my random selection of books. And, you know, braver readers than me can indulge in all of them during this lockdown. Uh, it, you know, it's just me that is seeking refuge in amusing diaries. You go for it. I'm Zing Zing, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. You definitely want to head to our website to find out more about the Reading Women Challenge, get exclusive video and audio content, and check out the hashtag reading women on instagram and twitter to join in the conversation around the 24 brilliant past winners of the women's prize of fiction please click subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast it really helps spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today thanks very much for listening and see you next time <laughs>